Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 22nd episode of Late Night Crimecast. I'm your host, Robin Steffens, and every week on Thursday, I'm going to post a new true crime story. I will cover cases that are local, cases that got a lot of media attention, and everything in between. Before we get started, I would like to ask you, my late night listener, to leave a rating and review on this podcast. They are always helpful, a lot more than you think, and also, if you go to my Anchor page and click the website link, you can actually submit a case you would like me to cover, and I'll be checking that out weekly and just picking from cases from there. I will also give you a shout out if you guys do that, of course, so definitely go and do that. Click that link in Anchor and make your suggestions. Lastly, I want to say that today will be an extra long episode to make up for me missing last week. So enjoy. Now, let's get into today's case. I really didn't enjoy this one because I feel like this case should have been solved. With the amount of evidence alone, I feel like this case should have been a slam dunk. But, you know, I think that's what makes it more important to talk about and more important to share. Because the more attention you draw to a case, you know, the more that can and will be done. So with that being said, let's get started. Today we will be talking about the murder of Faith Hedgepeth. Faith Hedgepeth was born September 26, 1992 as a member of the Halawa Saponi Native American tribe. Her parents divorced when she was really young, actually within a year of her birth. And this was mainly due to her father's drug addiction he was battling at the time. So her mother actually named her Faith because she thought that's what the family needed at the time. Like her birth was going to be something that was going to get the family through the addiction that her father was dealing with and all the other things the family was dealing with. So she was like that hope for the family. But unfortunately, her parents, they still didn't work out. And after their divorce, she was raised by her mother, Connie Hedgepeth. Now, despite being raised in a home with a single mother and three other siblings, Faith excelled in school. She was an honor student, a cheerleader, and a member of many different extracurricular clubs and organizations. She had tons of friends and was an extremely well-rounded girl. And after graduating high school, she actually did well enough to earn a Gates Millennium Scholarship to attend the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. If you're unaware of that scholarship and what it does, it fully covers attendance to any U.S. college or university which is a huge deal. If you're listening from outside of the U.S. or from a country in which you don't have to pay for higher education, most of the time we have to get scholarships here in the U.S. to afford to go to university without debt. And to get a scholarship that completely covers your attendance to whatever school you choose, that's impressive. Like, you have to be extremely smart or talented for something like that. And then also the school she went to, the university she went to, So basically, UNC Chapel Hill is considered a public Ivy school. Basically, it's an extremely prestigious school that's held in the same regards as an Ivy League school. So think like Harvard, things like that. So 
What she accomplished is no small feat. This girl had a lot going for her, and she wanted to be the first in her family to graduate from university, and she was even thinking further than that. She was thinking of doing more schooling even to become a pediatrician because of her love for children. So she had so many huge goals she set, and when she entered university, she was actually doing really well her first two years. She was headed in the right direction in terms of school. But outside of school, it was kind of a different story. Faith was often described as being extremely social in college. She was described as being super smiley and friendly, and her personality, as well as her looks, certainly caught the attention of many boys on campus. She was kind of notorious for being a party girl. And I mean, that's not really news. I mean, there are plenty of beautiful college girls on any campus that are super social, you know, social butterflies like Faith was. So there is no issue there. It's not uncommon. And, you know, honestly, her first few years of campus, she had no problems in or out of school. This all started to change around 2012. So I guess the story really starts with her roommate, Karina Rosario. Faith had met Karina during their freshman year at the college and they instantly hit it off. They quickly became like best friends to each other and they ended up becoming roommates off campus as time went on. I should mention that Karina actually didn't go to the same university as Faith did. She went to one in the area that was less prestigious and don't worry because that's gonna come up later. Uh, but yeah, the girls, they live together which wouldn't have been an issue except for the fact that Karina had been having domestic violence issues with her boyfriend at the time, Eric Takoy Jones. Now, Eric lived with the girls for some time, but eventually the relationship between Karina and Eric had gotten so volatile that he ended up moving out, but he was not finished just yet. He ended up attempting to break into the apartment in early July of 2012 twice. And this was after the time that Karina got the door locks changed specifically to keep him out. So he broke into their apartment in the middle of the day, broke down two doors, and ended up assaulting Karina. At that point, it had gotten so bad that Faith actually took Karina to get a protective order against him. And of course, Eric got wind of this, and he actually started to have anger towards Faith as well. She was becoming an issue in his own twisted relationship with Karina. And I think he really internalized these feelings about Faith because at some point he had an exchange over the phone with her in which he threatened her life. He basically told her that if his relationship didn't work out with Karina, he would kill her. And that in itself really shows how much hate he had towards her. It also shows that he was blaming Faith for his relationship issues and, you know, him threatening Faith, that happened in July of 2012. Faith was murdered on September 7th, 2012. So the day before her murder, September 6th, 2012, Faith was actually attending a rush event for a Native American sorority named Alpha Pi Omega. Faith had a lot of pride in her culture, so this was something she really wanted, to join a group of girls with her same background and likely a lot in common. So everything at that event was going fine, but she had left a bit early. She left around 7.15, saying that she had to work on a paper she was writing about the history of her tribe. So after leaving that event, she and Karina went to the university library to study together around 8 p.m. 
Then between 8.30 and 9, Faith exchanged texts with her father about her hopes to join the sorority. So she really said nothing to him that would worry him. And at that point of the night, things were doing fine. Everything was okay. So Faith ends up leaving Karina in the library for a short period of time and then returning around 11.30. It was reported that she went to go see a boy during that time, but it's essentially unconfirmed because the police will not give any further information about that. I mean, they kept a lot of records under wrap and a lot of things sealed, but we'll get into that later. Regardless, after she returned, both girls end up leaving the library around 12 to go back to their shared apartment. I'm guessing while the girls were studying, maybe or maybe they were just on their way home, they decided they wanted to go out that night as a reward for their hard work. Just a half hour after returning to their apartment, the girls left again to go to a nightclub called The Thrill in downtown Chapel Hill. They arrived at the club around 12.40 a.m. This is documented by security cameras at the club. After almost an hour and a half of dancing, Karina reportedly had an upset stomach and she wanted to leave. So, you know, she gathered faith and they left together. Security cameras show the girls leaving at 2.06 a.m. In this video, you can see Karina, she's a little bit ahead of Faith and she's walking with another group while, you know, Faith is a little bit back and she's with one male. So here's where things get interesting and the rest of the story is really going to go off the timeline that the authorities were able to gather from others. So it was around 3 a.m. that the girls get back to their apartment. And sometime after that, it is recorded that a woman who lived below the girls was awake at that time and heard three thumping noises. I mean, I don't know how to really take this information because I live on the first floor of my apartment complex building and I hear strange loud noises all the time coming from my upstairs neighbor. You know, but the neighbor, she described this noise as being similar to a heavy bag being dropped or furniture being overturned. I mean, still, I would like to say I'm pretty familiar with those kinds of noises. And as far as I know, no one's been murdered in the apartment above me. So no idea if those noises are relevant to the case, but I thought I would mention it. You know, something that is curious, however, is that around the same time that the neighbor reported hearing these sounds, probably a little bit after, someone had gone on Faith's Facebook. And it's unknown whether or not it was Faith, but if we're going by the timeline that those noises the neighbor heard was Faith being attacked, then it certainly wasn't Faith. So again, around 3.40 a.m., someone went on Faith's phone, and a text was sent from her phone to that of a boy named Brandon Edwards. Now, Brandon was a former boyfriend of Karina's, so the texts that were sent are extremely strange. The first text sent says, and I quote, Hey B, can you come over here please? Rosario needs you more, aha. You know, please let her know you care. End quote. Then three minutes later, another text was sent with the word than, which is believed to be a correction for the aha in the previous text. So the text was supposed to say, quote, Hey B, can you come over here please? Rosario needs you more than you know. Please let her know you care, end quote. If you weren't paying attention, by the way, Rosario is Karina. That's her last name. 
So why would Faith be sending a text about Karina to Karina's ex-boyfriend in the early morning? Hmm. That was the last text or activity to come from Faith's phone. At 4.16 a.m., Brandon Edwards sends a return text asking who sent the previous text, which is another reason why I find it so strange. Did he not know her number? Why would she be texting her ex who doesn't have her number? Why does she have her, his number? And so, interestingly enough, Karina's phone records show that she was also trying to call him around the same time. He did not answer, and when he didn't answer, she ended up calling another friend of hers named Jordan McCary, or McCrary. I'm sorry, I might have butchered that, but I'm pretty sure it's Jordan McCrary. He was a soccer player at UNC Chapel Hill that she knew, and so, you know, he ends up answering her calls. You know how soccer players are. Um, but he does, and he answers her around 4.25 a.m., Karina leaves the apartment with Jordan in his car, and at that time, Karina said that she had looked into Faith's bedroom and saw that Faith was asleep before going out. Karina also says that she leaves the apartment door unlocked, which mm, I'm not going to say anything yet, but is there anything strange you guys are picking up on yet? I mean, I'm going to get to it soon, but, you know, keep those wheels turning up there. She left the apartment door unlocked. So this guy, Jordan McCreary, he ends up driving Karina to the home of another friend that lived nearby. They arrive there around 4.30 a.m. It's unknown exactly why they were there or what they were doing, but they both end up spending the rest of the night in the early morning there. A short time after 10.30 a.m., Karina tries to arrange a ride home. Karina first attempts to reach Faith, who doesn't answer, and so instead, she decides to call another friend named Marisol Rangel. Karina asks Marisol to try to contact Faith, but Marisol just decides that she's going to pick up Karina herself. Marisol was a good friend of both of the girls, and at the time, you know, she and Karina, they both discussed how strange it was that Faith wasn't answering her phone. I mean, usually she answers her phone, and because it's a Friday, she should have been up because she had class that day. You know, I mean, I'm sure they just summed it up to Faith oversleeping or something, so they just kind of ignore that. But when Karina and Marisol, they get to the apartment, it's a little bit before 11 a.m. and they see Faith's car in the parking lot. So, you know, they're like, she must have overslept. She must be in the apartment still sleeping. And when they enter the apartment, they call out to her and she doesn't respond. So, you know, after they hear that she hasn't responded, they go to her bedroom where they find a brutal crime scene. On the floor of the bedroom is her partially nude, bloodied body wrapped in a quilt. They immediately dial 911. There are many theories on what actually happened to Faith that night that she was brutally murdered. But first, I want to talk about what the authorities found. When the authorities arrived to the apartment, they were met with a bloody crime scene. 
Faith had been murdered by blunt force trauma, likely caused by an empty rum bottle found in the apartment. I'm going to go through the evidence that the authorities found because this case has a ridiculous amount of evidence for an unsolved case. So there's this rum bottle as the murder weapon. And I know it sounds unlikely that a rum bottle, this was a glass rum bottle, it could kill someone, but a TV show actually did some tests and it showed that there could be a lot of force used and the rum bottle still wouldn't break. So it's totally plausible that the rum bottle was the murder weapon. Also, the rum bottle was covered in blood and, you know, it just matched the injuries and the trauma. So it just makes sense. So they found that rum bottle. That's the murder weapon. Then they found semen at the scene of the crime. Now that's great. They have DNA from the crime scene. And guess what? That same semen is found elsewhere in the apartment. So that's even better. That means that, you know, either the person went around the apartment getting their semen everywhere or that they had been in the apartment before. Plus, the only blood found in the apartment of Faith's was in the bedroom where she was murdered. And so for there to be semen found in other parts of the apartment and not Faith's blood, it's way more likely that the person had just been in the apartment before. And what male was known to have been in the apartment? A male with a particularly violent history with both girls in the apartment? You guessed it, Karina's ex, Eric. So we have a clear first suspect. And the more authorities look into it, the more obvious it becomes. Police learned of his violent history with Karina and his threats against Faith. And they also find out that the night of September 6th, around 6 p.m., Eric sent a text to an acquaintance asking for forgiveness, quote, for what I am about to do, end quote. And then he posted the same message on his Twitter feed. Three days later, he changed the banner on his Facebook page to read, Dear Lord, Forgive me for all of my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead today. But what happens? Eric is brought in for questioning. He has his semen taken and, you know, they try to match it with the semen found on the crime scene. But guess what? It's not a match. Now, before I go ahead any further, you might be confused about DNA, but from what I can gather is that they don't have DNA at the ready unless it's already in the system. So they won't have a DNA match on a crime database unless that person has already committed a crime before. So this person could be anybody. They would just need to get the semen to match a solid suspect. So, you know, the authorities, they end up getting DNA from Brandon Edwards and many other men that may or may not have come in contact with Faith and Karina that night at the club, and there's no match for any of them. So there's also another theory out there that possibly the semen is from someone who Karina or Faith, likely Faith, hooked up with, and that, you know, it just was on the crime scene because it was recent, and if that is true, that honestly could screw up the entire case or could be the reason why this has gone unsolved because there's just so much more evidence but I think because of the focus on this bodily fluid found on the crime scene it could have possibly messed up 
a lot of the investigation. But that's what I'm going to say about that. You guys can take that for however you'd like. But, you know, even without getting a match for the semen, like I said, there's plenty of more evidence around the crime scene. There was a cryptic message that was left. Also, a 911 call that I want to go over with you guys. And on top of that call, there was also a voicemail, likely by a butt dial that had happened. And the voicemail was originally thought to have taken place during Faith's murder, but I believe it was found to have taken place during the time that the girls were at the club. That's all really unclear because of a glitch with the timestamps that was happening at that time. But regardless, I'm going to share all of that with you guys because even though there's some confusion about the voicemail, I'll let you decide for yourself what you think of it. So first, let's talk about this cryptic message. There was a note left near Faith's body that read, I'm not stupid bitch jealous. And this was left on some kind of, you know, fast food restaurant bag. And, you know, ugh. It's times like these where I wish I could show you the note, but I will just have to link the image to the note in the description instead. So you guys can go check that out if you want to. You can check it out now. You can check it out later. Um, but yeah, if you look at the note, it's clean of any blood. And the crime scene was said to be extremely bloody. So one would immediately think that this note had to be written before Faith was murdered or maybe not even at the crime scene at all. And just place there after. Also, you know, the way the note was written, it doesn't seem like it's said in the right order. Probably the writer was trying to write out, I'm not jealous, stupid bitch, or I'm not stupid, jealous bitch. You know, those seem the most likely to me. I mean, at least more than I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous. It just doesn't make any sense. And okay, to focus on the note, I really feel like the hand reading screams male, but the note itself screams female. Like you usually hear other girls call each other jealous bitches, stupid bitch, things like that when they're angry. Um, but even though the handwriting, it screams male to me, it has been said that the writer could have been, you know, using their non-dominant hand to throw people off. And you know, when you use your non-dominant hand, it usually comes out really crappy. And no offense, lots of guys don't have really good penmanship. So that would kind of make sense to me if it was a female and they use their non-dominant hand. I mean, like if you're going to commit a crime, you know, and write a note like that, that would be something that'd be smart to do just to, you know, throw people off. So that's kind of what I think about the note. It's unclear if there was any handwriting analysis done, but the authorities... They don't understand why the note was left in the first place. Like, why would they put a, the note next to her body? What was the point? If they were meaning for that to go to her, or her to see it, like, what was the point of writing it? And, you know, there are some theories that maybe it was left on purpose to confuse authorities, but I just find it really interesting. Also, the order of the note really is weird, like, I'm feeling like that was written in a rage and like they maybe just like didn't care how they're writing it or in what order. I'm unsure, but it just seems like this was definitely a crime of passion. So it would make sense that it was written like that. It's just really unknown who wrote it. 
Now, let's move on to the 911 call. Instead of sharing that on here, I'm going to link the transcript because it is a long phone call, you know, but there are a few things that kind of stick out to me. First, it says that Faith is semi-conscious in the beginning, um, but then it goes on to say that there's blood everywhere and she isn't breathing. And I mean, after the initial shock of finding her and, you know, you call 911, I feel like you would know by then if a person is dead or not. And so, you know, it goes on a little bit and it goes to say that it looks like she may have fallen out of her bed, but there's blood everywhere. And I mean, I guess that could have just been shock or denial. I don't know, but it's kind of weird to say she might have fallen out of her bed. That just doesn't make sense for, you know, apparently how much blood there was on this crime scene. Then later, the caller says that it looks like someone had been in the apartment and she keeps on saying that almost as if to force that idea, like to come up with what could have happened. And, you know, I listen to a lot of 911 calls. If you listen to a lot of 911 calls, you know, people who are guilty, they usually do things like that to come up with excuses before they are asked. Like, they'll come up with what could have happened to steer it towards that idea and, you know, just kind of plant that seed already in someone's mind. So if they were to hear this over and then, you know, hear their story, they'd be like, oh, well then someone must have just come in, someone must have broken in. So the way that is repeated, it really, really piqued my interest. But yeah, that's what I found strange about the call. There is also doubt about who actually made the call. So let me just speak about this really quickly. The person speaking on the phone is crying in the call, and there are many who are unsure that Karina even made it because... They think it was possibly Marisol who drove her home. And the reason for this is because they both have similar sounding voices. And there's also a video out there of Marisol crying during an interview, which sounds very similar to the crying on the 911 call. But no one can be sure. And I think it's suspicious because if you read the transcript, it doesn't seem like there's anyone else with the person who is on the phone. Like it doesn't seem like there's anyone else in the room. And so even though there should have been two of them, you know, in the transcript and actually even on the audio, no one can be heard in the background. So, you know, when the operator suggests to touch the body, the caller doesn't want to, but if you think about it, you know, there might be, if there's two people in the room, one of them might be talking, telling them to check and see if, you know, Faith is alive. And also, I think Marisol said in one of the interviews that she did that she was saying, tell them to hurry up, but you can't hear any of that in the background. Like, it's silent. But the person on the phone does say, hurry up, are you coming? Like, you know, where are they several times? So it really makes you think, was that even Karina really on the phone? Even though the operator asked twice and both times, the person on the phone says Karina. So, you know, there's that. I'm unsure about that one, um, but so far the only evidence we can go by is that it was actually Karina on the phone. But, you know, I'll get back to this. Next, I want to talk about the voicemail. I'll link the transcript for this one as well. Please, please, please read the transcripts, guys. It gives you so much more insight. 
Um, the transcripts for this voicemail are really, really incriminating. It seems like they tell the entire story of what happened to Faith, but there is doubt because of the timestamp. And so there's a timestamp on this voicemail that would put them in the club at the time. And, you know, it seems like there are two males, a female, and Faith in this voicemail. There's like several voices in this voicemail, so it's really hard to, you know, figure out what they're saying. It's also really bad audio. Um, and there's also rapping in this voicemail. It's just really unclear of some of the things being said. Um, but it sounds so incriminating and the transcript is very incriminating, you know. But there is a lot of doubt there because of the timestamp. I will say bits and pieces of what was said in the voicemail. You know, they had an audio specialist look into this and this is some of what they got. So there is a part where a female says, you want to mess with my boyfriend? And then Faith says, I said, I don't want to, Rosie. Then later a female says, I'm going to kick your face, bitch. I figured out that's bullshit. Then again, she says, don't ever think I would have believed you lies and then it's kind of inaudible at you another inaudible and then you hear faith say ow then the female says ow mockingly and then says something inaudible again and the female says again your talk sure ain't funny you know he's gonna inaudible you and f you basically i will f you bitch and then later, Faith says, let me go. Then a male who is inaudible says um, something her. Faith says, help me. And the female says, don't be a pussy. Put up a fight. The last thing I'm going to read you guys um, is also a little bit down later in the transcript. Faith says something inaudible. Then she says, ow, my head. Then a female says something inaudible and do it. And then a male says something inaudible and says, I think she's dying. It will literally make you sick to read the full transcript. I don't know why they can't use it. And I'm going to guess it's because of the timestamp. But the conversation flows a little too well and is a little too accurate to what had happened to Faith for it to be just a coincidence, in my opinion. Um, or for it to actually have happened at a club. I think that because of the faulty timestamp, which would place them in the club, they honestly have no choice but to not use it. And, you know, there's also something in the back of my head because there are small clips of the audio that I kind of think that because the audio is so hard to hear, maybe the audio specialist already kind of had it in his head of what the incident was and kind of made this conversation a thing out of barely usable audio. It's really hard to unhear the voicemail when it's already difficult to make out what's being said and then you have the transcript running next to it. So it sort of makes the words kind of come out and match the transcript when you're listening. I'm, I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys, but long story short, there's just a lot of doubt there. 
So now I want to get into my theory and who I think killed Faith. There are lots of theories out there, but most of them kind of point to the same person um, or persons. So clearly, I think Karina had something to do with her death, uh, whether she did it herself or set up Faith. Um, but, you know, there are some things I just feel like I need to say. When I found out that Karina, who literally had her place broken into twice by her violent ex, claims to have left the door open overnight with her vulnerable sleeping roommate there while she went to another friend's house until early morning. Alarm bells, they just went off. Like, that does not seem realistic for someone who is just out of a domestic violence relationship who should be way more cautious, you know, who had their place broken into. Uh, next, I feel like the crime scene was staged to look like a break-in and rape. So what I feel like Karina wants people to think is that she left the door open on accident, maybe, um, to spend the night with her alibi, basically. And then someone randomly discovers the unlocked door and decides to attack Faith. Then, of course, there's semen found on the scene that does not match anyone the authorities think Faith or Karina may have had contact with. So this would make sense for the break-in and rape. It's just a random person. Except that in the autopsy, there was no evidence to suggest that Faith was raped. Like, there was no vaginal trauma. So at the crime scene, because she was partially nude and her shirt was kind of thrown over her head, it looked like she was assaulted. Um... And of course, you know, they find the semen at the crime scene. So of course it appears that way. But there's no actual evidence of the trauma that would come from a rape, which I find strange. I also want to segue from that into the fact that Karina, who was allegedly the one on the 911 call, repeatedly says that someone broke in, trying to plant that seed. And then there's the note left behind. What I think happened really is that Karina and Faith, they did not have the perfect friendship and maybe with the boys, the jealousy, you know, I mean, Faith even went to a better school than her. You know, something was just brewing underneath the surface. And I think Karina might have attacked Faith in the heat of the moment and then staged this whole situation in order to appear innocent. And honestly, I feel like a lot of things are luck because of things that were, you know, just not able to be used as evidence you know and then there's also speculation that something happened between faith and brandon edwards who was an ex of karina but there's like no real like solid proof of that i mean at least for you know people on the outside and you know that hookup would have just happened the night before so it's totally possible um and you know, there's that, but I mean, it's all speculation. This is all speculation. I just want to say, like, this is an opinion. I'm in no way stating facts, and I'm just using information I found online to get my point across. I, I just want to make that clear, but that's my opinion. So, what do you think, my late night listener? Who killed Faith Hedgepeth?
Before I end this podcast, I would like to wrap it up by talking about how much the local police missed the mark on this one. First of all, they sealed all the information that they were finding out on this case for a long time. So they were finding evidence that people didn't know about that, you know, could have possibly helped the public identify a suspect. And so a reporter named Chelsea Dulani, she actually wrote an article in which she speculated that the records were being sealed in order to conceal mistakes made by the Chapel Hill police. She talked to residents of the apartments where Faith and Karina lived, and they told her that the police were there and they thought they were there due to a domestic dispute between Karina and Eric because, I mean, clearly they lived there and they've seen or heard their disputes before. So the neighbors, they weren't even informed of what actually happened. They weren't asked questions about what happened and they lived there. They could have possibly seen something or heard something. Um, I mean, I don't know how the neighbor who lived below them, you know, was able to give them that information and how late in the game that information might have come in because uh, state police actually did, you know, join the investigation. So I'm really unsure if that was just discovered at that point. But, you know, they really didn't ask the neighbors for this important information that they could have found. And also they said that... um they blocked off the apartment units where the murder took place and they only checked the girl's apartment. Like they didn't search any other apartment, maybe next door or anything for any evidence. They didn't search the woods behind the apartments. They hardly searched the area at all. You know, they also left Faith's car unsecure while they searched the apartment. Their investigation was basically all over the place. I mean, the State Bureau of Investigation Officers began investigating the case late in 2013, and they were way better at doing their job, but clearly it had been a year already, kind of late in the game to start picking up the slack of the local police. One last thing this reporter found was that a towing company had set up a system of security cameras to monitor activity in the club's parking lot. They could have possibly recorded anything that might have happened outside of the club involving Faith and Karina. However, the police did not ask to see it until almost 19 months after the crime. By that time, any footage from that night had been long recorded over. So how is it that a reporter can think of something like that, but the police can't? That's just crazy. Like... I mean, in this case, like I said earlier, there was so much evidence, so many things that seem like they certainly could be damning evidence even, but still this case goes on unsolved. And so I really, really, I hope it's solved one day. I hope they find a suspect because there really needs to be justice for faith. This was an extra long episode for you guys. I am so sorry I've been inconsistent over the past few weeks. There's been a lot going on for me, so please bear with me. I'm trying to move out of my apartment. Um, I got my wisdom teeth taken out, and then there's this coronavirus stuff happening. I'm, I'm really all over the place, honestly, I, I am. Um, but yeah, there won't be an episode next week because Murder Monday is coming up. But I'm going to do my best to stay on track after that. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I love you and I hope you guys tune in next week. 
or on next Monday. Next, next Monday, I should say. <laughs> Bye. Thank mm -hmm. you.